0: The title of the message is this, God's providence works all things for our good. Huh, have you heard that before? Well, I think so. This is our sixth installment of that theme, and of course, that is a prevalent theme for the life and ministry of Joseph as we close out the book of Genesis. What we see, though, is that God's sovereignty behind the scenes guarantees our hope and calling, and that's in keeping with our theme for 2024, one hope, one calling. But as we think about uh, the text or the context of the text this morning, I need to remind us that when we check through the text, where we've been in chapters 43 to 47 last time was a sweeping look at the conclusion of the whirlwind of what is indeed the sovereign providence of God that was using the bad in Joseph's life to bring things for his good. And so we covered that really at a dizzying pace last week. But what we noted was the key truth behind the story found in chapter 43. That is, God is merciful. Recall that? God, in his mercy, thus grants peace to those who repentantly come to him. We saw that highlighted specifically in chapter 43 and bookended in chapter 47. So we saw specifically Jacob's act of worship and his genuflecting faith in chapter 43 and again in his willingness to let his boys go on the trek to Egypt knowing that it might be the demise of his youngest son, Benjamin. Jacob's act of worshipful and genuflecting faith followed up by Judah's stand for righteousness in defending Benjamin turned the narrative to the power of God's transformative providence, as God sovereignly ordains all the circumstances of their lives to work for their good and his glory. And that sort of sub-theme that we saw in chapters 43 to 44, bringing his story to a conclusion, is the springboard for today. And so as we think about what we noted last time, we we noted in our fifth installment of the story that God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of our calling. When we allow God's sovereign providence through his transforming grace to work in our lives by his mercy, granting us peace, he anoints us with hope in the pursuit of our calling. And that's, that was where we were last time. There's a subtle shift in the text here, though, as the Holy Spirit wraps this story up as He gave the narrative to Moses, to that generation of Israelites that exited Egypt. And so, as such, today, as the narrative in Genesis resolves, we will see the glorious truths of God's deliverance. In fact, that's been the theme of Genesis, has it not? God delivers. Now, sin destroys, does it not? But God delivers. And the the book of Genesis ends on that wonderful high refrain of God's deliverance of his people. God delivers through his deliverer, and his deliverer is sovereignly appointed in his providence as part of the lineage of the seed that he promised to to, uh, to Adam and Eve and then came through Abram. And so as we look at that sweeping thought, We understand that the destructive nature of sin, though, is still prevalent. I mean, Jacob's story was a disaster. We saw from the baby wars with his wives and their handmaidens, um, all through um, the difficulties with Laban, his father-in-law, and changing his wages over and over and over again, to the reconciliation with his brother Esau, who was a profane, fornicating man, Um, who gave up his birthright, who gave up everything for the instant gratification of the now. All of this disaster and tragedy that permeated Jacob's family shows that sin is still prevalent, as as we will also see in the blessing and cursing of Jacob's son in chapter 49. But the highlight of these closing chapters reveals that when we place our faith in God's promises, rooted in his word... This step of faith shapes our actions and choices, revealing the power of God's transformative grace to all who are willing to see. In essence, our properly placed faith in the God who always keeps his promises becomes a beacon for the lost in every generation that points to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. You see... The kernel of truth this morning is this, God's transformative grace must be appropriated by faith in His promises lived out in our choices. Now, to be sure, that is a packed statement, so let's unpack it a little bit. God's transformative grace must be appropriated by faith. You see, when we are recipients of the manifold grace of God, which, by the way, He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? There is a general grace of God that is given to all, just like there was a general offer of salvation to all through the seed that will bless all, and to Abraham, uh, who is the father of our faith, who properly places his faith in the one who always keeps his promises. And thus, his faith in the one who keeps his promises was accredited to him or counted to him for righteousness, So when we trust in the transformative grace of God, the grace of God that generally is offered to all, but specifically given through His seed, His Son that we now know to be Jesus, the one who conquered death for all, who call on Him, and He satisfied the wrath of God for all sin, for all sinners, for all time. He is the propitiation of our sins, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, John, 1 John 2.2. We understand that that transformative grace must be appropriated. It must be grabbed onto. It must be taken by the reins. And how do we do that? We do that by faith. Now listen, all of us have faith, don't we? You had faith that your car would get you to the church this morning. Um, I'm really glad my car got me to church this morning. When I got in the car, I realized I have, I have fumes in my gas tank, <laughs> and I had forgotten about that when I parked it on uh, on Friday. Um, and i was thinking, you know, I, I don't know how many miles I can actually go. Thankfully, I only live about two miles from the church. So I made it to church this morning, not sure if I can make it to the gas station or not, but that was a step of faith. <laughs> when I started the car and put it in drive and started to pull away, I thought, hmm, well, I'm just going to Trust that the gas will not uh, dissipate uh, faster than the distance between here and there. (laughs) Uh, That's a silly illustration. I placed the faith in the mechanical engineer who designed the gas tank and the volume and and the amount of gas that the engine will burn, that it wouldn't run out before I got to my destination. But all of us have faith in something or someone. And Scripture has taught us, Genesis has taught us, that General saving faith comes through the faith in God who always keeps His promises. The God who promised a seed to crush the serpent's head. The God who provides eternal life through His one and only way. So when we understand that God's transformative grace comes through that seed, we appropriate that reality by faith in God's promises. And when we do, we, like James... We say, hey, you show me your faith. James said, I'll show, me, I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, he's not saying that you're saved by works. We understand that, right? In fact, that lines up well with Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2. We know verse 8 and 9. We quote it all the time, but verse 10 is pretty informative as well. Verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So, what is the result of transformative grace that is appropriated by faith? When we put our faith in the God who always keeps his promises, what is the result? Action. Action of obedience and love. If we were to to take that next step, step kernelized, Jesus says, How shall all men, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples? if you love one another and you keep my commandments. Obedient love for the brothers is an outward manifestation of our active faith. And sometimes it's hard to love people that don't love you well, right? I mean, don't pretend. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes we, we, we get in situations where we realize, you know what, I'm supposed to be loving to this brother or sister, but they're being pretty prickly right now. The closer I get, they're like a blowfish, you know, I get close and all of a sudden, and I got stuck by the barbs and they're poisonous and it didn't feel good. But my identifying factor of my relationship with God, my appropriated grace through faith in God's promises is that my identifying factor is that I will love one another and obey his word. So I'm going to love this brother or sister, right? So as we think about this appropriated faith, in God's promises lives out is lived out in our choices. So as we conclude our walk through and our journey through Genesis, what we find is yes, sin destroys but God delivers. And when we recognize God's delivering transformative grace by faith appropriated through his son, his finished work on the cross, we recognize that He is the God who always keeps His promises, then I can cling to the hope of my calling that Jesus Christ will save me to the uttermost because I have come to God through Him, as the author of Hebrews says. That Jesus Christ will present me faultless before the throne of God and He's able to keep me from falling, as Jude says. That Jesus Christ's precious blood has delivered me and made me a Prince and King, a holy nation, a peculiar people, just like Peter said. That the transforming grace of God, who has always promised, has promised me that I will be one day glorified as an adopted son and have all the rights and privileges of Jesus in glory, as Paul said to the Ephesians. You see, when we appropriate... The grace, the transformative grace of God by faith in His promised Son it secures our present circumstance, allows us to serve God in the present circumstance, no matter what that is. The trial of your faith works endurance, brothers, James says. Uh, Peter says, hey, don't be surprised about the fiery trial that's come upon you. Right? So whatever your present circumstances are, the transformative grace of God, appropriated by faith in His promised Son, should and must be lived out in our daily lives because God has secured our eternal life. And in fact, when we think about the security of the believer, it should motivate us in the present. Unfortunately, there are theological persuasions that would say the security of the believer actually makes me become a fat and bulbous spiritual Christian. I sit in the pew and do nothing but feed on the Word of God until I become uh, morbidly obese spiritually. And I can't move from my chair. I need a crane to lift me out of the house. Are you talking? Are you under tracking with me? I'm using an illustration here. Because we aren't, we, aren't, we, we think of, well, God doesn't need me. God does all of it. God does everything. So I'm just going to continue to feed on His Word and never be His ambassador. Never recognize my one hope and my one calling. What is my calling? To wit that God in Christ has reconciled me to Him, and thus He has given me the ministry of reconciliation that God through me might reconcile the world to Him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ's sake, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And so as His ambassadors... We are meant to pre- prepare or produce or be beacons that point others to Jesus. Now I realize you, you might think this is a long introduction, but I have a short message. So let's, let's ask the question that is built on our proposition this morning. How does this narrative, as Genesis concludes... How does the narrative highlight for us that God's transformative grace must be appropriated by faith in His promises lived out in our choices? Very astute question. I'm glad you asked that this morning. How does, how does this narrative highlight that for us? And the answer is there are really two ways that it does so. And in chapters 48 and 49, we see the first way. And that is faith in God's Word can produce actions that are counterintuitive. I know I've been accused in the past of using big words. This one was on purpose. So you think, well, what is counterintuitive? That's an interesting thought. Faith in God's Word can produce actions that are counterintuitive. So let's break this one down a little bit. First of all, when I say faith in God's Word, what I'm actually referring to is not just His written and revealed Word, but but the idea that His Word equals His promises. Now, where do we find His promises? In His written and revealed Word, in the 66 books of, of the inspired and errant and infallible Bible that we hold and we, we read and we listen to and we follow. Okay, But when I say faith in God's Word, I mean faith in God's promises. And everything in Scripture can be kernelized simply and then can be laid out and displayed in different facets. So kernelized simply faith in God's word or his promises can produce actions that are counterintuitive. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he calls us to actions that seem to be counterintuitive, right? We'll talk about that and the text highlights that. Okay? So as we think about that, first of all, um, let's just, what is something that is counterintuitive? Well, it's the opposite of intuitive. Now, because it's not good to define a word with the word I need to explain what that means. What is intuitive? If counterintuitive is opposite of intuitive, what is intuitive? Well, something that is intuitive is something that is not, or or counterintuitive is something that's not easily understood as instinctive. So, for example, how many of you have ever, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever uh, steered a sailboat? Steering a sailboat is actually counterintuitive. You actually have to push the tiller the opposite way that you intend to go. It's counterintuitive. Um, Another way, this is a a, a way that would never happen in America, but going on a red light. That'd be counterintuitive. Stopping on green, right? Because intuitively we know green means grow, green means go, red means stop, right? Uh, So that would be counterintuitive. Um, And for those first-time drivers, and especially for those that come from other countries and learn how to drive in America, it is even counterintuitive sometimes to turn right on red, even though that's legally allowed, right? So sometimes turning right on red, which is legally allowed, feels counterintuitive, right? I'm breaking the law, oh, it's red, I'm going, but I'm allowed to go right on red in certain circumstances, right? What about this, moving or starting a business in the midst of a recession? Counterintuitive right And so sometimes faith or our Christian walk God often calls us to do things that are counterintuitive but only when they are based on His promises. Are you tracking with me? okay so I, I want to be really careful here because I, I understand this these truths are in chapters 48, 49 and 50, but I also understand that we have a whole subsection of, of Uh, evangelical and Protestant Christianity that's globally would say that there's the name-it-and-claim-it, the prosperity gospel crowd. That's not what I mean, right? If it were, you better believe I'd have a 1968 Mustang GT, maybe Boss 302, um, sitting in my garage because I'd name it and claim it, be sitting right there, be blue with the white stripes. I mean, come on, man, right? And that's not the point. By the way, do I even need that? I mean, it'd be fun to ride in and great to own, but no, it's going it's to melt, rust, and burn, right? What do I need? I need to be winning souls for Jesus. What can I take with me? Souls for Jesus, right? There was a, a hymn that we preacher boys used to sing in Bible college. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. Souls for Jesus will fight until we die. We'll never give in. Souls for Jesus or we'll fight until we win. Souls for Jesus is our battle cry. And uh, when, you, when you hear 5,000 preacher boys sing that at once, it was pretty stirring emotionally. It's never left me, that battle cry. Souls for Jesus. I can take souls with me. I can't take a 68 Mustang Boss 302 blue with white stripes. I wouldn't want to anyway. But probably way better vehicles in heaven. So we'll see what's driving around those streets of gold one day if there will be anything driving around. As we see, though, in the text, I want to just kind of highlight some of the things here. So we understand that uh, God's faith or faith in God's Word can produce actions that are counterintuitive. We understand that something that is counterintuitive is not easily understood as instinctive. Okay, So um, faith in God's Word will often produce actions that are counterintuitive. So let's talk about some of those actions that show up in chapters 48 and 49 that seem to be counterintuitive. What we find here, and let's look at chapter 48, um, let's, let me just read a bit of it. So it starts in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed, your father is sick. And he, Joseph, took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, there's El Shaddai, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz." in the land of Canaan Luz is the name of Bethel okay remember Luz Bethel and he blessed me and he said be, to me behold i will make you fruitful and multiply you and i will make you make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession and now your two sons Ephraim and Manasseh who were born to you in the land of Egypt before i came to you in Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon shall be mine they shall be mine all right let me pause here let me tell you what's happening. How did Jacob's life go to date? Would you say he had smooth sailing? Would you say Jacob made the wisest choices of all of the patriarchs? Would you say that Jacob's life was hunky-dory, okay, or whatever colloquialism you want to use? Humultuous. That's a really good verb. It was tumultuous, or ad- adverb. It was difficult. It was hard. Some of those difficulties were inherited. Favoritism from his family and his parents. A refusal for Isaac and Rebecca, uh, or a refusal of Isaac to do what God commanded was necessary to bless the secondborn and not the firstborn, put him in a predicament. Right? An animosity between he and his brother created issues and challenges with the deception that was propagated on him by Laban when he wakes up on day one of marriage and finds out his wife is not the wife he served for. Totally different woman here. Okay? But some of those choices were on him. And so what we see is the favoritism that was fostered by his parents became deeply rooted in his own relationship. And Hence, we see the bridal wars, and hence we see, or excuse me, baby baby wars, and hence we see some of the bad points that we've seen happen in his life. But what happens here, um, every commentator that I've read, and I read through this multiple times, uh, agrees that this is an ancient adoption ceremony. Okay? And notice what I just read in in verse 5, and now your two sons... Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. What is he doing? He's replacing the first and second born, Reuben and Simeon, and their inheritance and their blessing with Manasseh and Ephraim. He is adopting them as his own and replacing them. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why Reuben and Simeon Need to be replaced. We'll see that in chapter 50, okay? Um, or a nuclear physicist. We have some nuclear engineers and nuclear physicists in here, so it doesn't take a nuclear physicist, right? Uh, here's the deal Reuben had fornicated with his dad's wife, right? Broken God's law, done that which was heinous in God's eyes, and he forfeited all rights of blessing. Simeon, motivated with his brother Levi, had done what was evil in the sight of God and had willfully slaughtered an entire city of men uh, men, um, under the deceptive guise that they would now inherit houses, land, property, and wives from Jacob's descendants. But instead, they inherited the sword. They all died in a cruel feat by Simeon and Levi. So Jacob is adopting these two boys and appropriating them into the line of blessing. That becomes important because, number one, it's counterintuitive. To adopt and replace your own kids with grandkids is counterintuitive. You see that? But here's the other thing that we saw. Don't you remember last week we saw this uh, transformative grace in Jacob's life? And it began with his hardened will that was softened by recognizing God's providence and God's promise to him when he said, you know what, I'm willing to let Benjamin go. Judah, you said you'd be a stand-in. I'm going to let Benjamin go knowing that you will be vicariously in his place. Tracking with me? So the transformative grace in Jacob's life began at that moment and what we find is that becoming stronger and stronger and stronger to this point where Jacob is now transformed by God's grace, realizing by faith that he's appropriated that God's promises to him in Bethel at Luz when he first left with nothing to his name, nothing in his pocket, fleeing for his life, and now he is a wealthy man preserved in Egypt with his his. Uh, blessed son Joseph as viceroy, second in command over the most powerful nation on earth, and he realizes God's promises will always be fulfilled. And he's stepping up by faith. And he's choosing to adopt these boys, but it doesn't stop there. Look what else happens. Keep going. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. But as for me, when I came to Padan. Rachel died before me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And by the way, that's Bethlehem. Says it in text, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, "Who are these?" Joseph said to his father, "They're my sons, uh, whom God has given to me in this place." Now you say, "Why did he ask that question?" Again, this is a formulaic adoption ceremony. This is very similar to when, um, which we'll see in May, and we just saw recently with. Uh, Austin and Krissa, last fall, when the pastor stands before the congregation, he says, Who gives this woman to wed or to be married? Right? This is a formulaic uh, relationship of a transfer of ownership. So the woman was under the authority of her father and her home, her household, and it's being transferred to her husband, so that the two of them can be one flesh, and they establish their own home and their own head, their own leadership, right? In the same way, he's saying, who are these sons? And Joseph answers in the formulaic way, they're my sons whom God has given me in this place. This is a formulaic adoption ceremony. And he said, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now, the word bless shows up three times in a trifecta in this text, Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. He was, by faith, that was appropriated by the transforming grace of God in his life, choosing to believe God at his word. Remember, he was the secondborn that was blessed as the firstborn. His father, Isaac, was technically the secondborn of his grandfather, Abraham, but was chosen as the seed. And if we were to trek all the way back, we would find Seth, was not the firstborn, but he was the one who was blessed. And so counterintuitive decisions that God has made, counterintuitive to the world, but intuitive to God, when we appropriate by faith God's transforming grace and recognize that those are based on his promises, then we, in essence, are a beacon to those in this lost and dying world to show them Jesus Christ and God's power to accomplish God's work of providence in this world. Faith in God's word can produce actions that are counterintuitive, and this is clearly a subset of those. All right, so he says, bring them to me. The eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Joseph brings them near, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel says to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. This was Um, This was, again, the conclusion to the adoption ceremony. There's a double bow here. He bows, Jacob bows. It's the conclusion to the ceremony. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand. Now I want you to notice, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but seven times in the chapter, what's the number of seven? The number of perfection. So it's a total of seven times in the chapter there's a clear distinction, right right hand, left hand, 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 right hand, left hand. That was seven times. And when I say it all like that over and over again, it's like, why'd you just do that? It's just, it went really long. You didn't have to do that. Well, the text does that. does it on purpose to, to point out, Joseph is like, hey, Dad, this one is on the right hand, place of blessing. Preferred, firstborn, Dad, this one's on the left hand. You see that, Dad? Please acknowledge you see that, Dad. And Joseph, or uh, so Joseph lays them out. Manasseh, firstborn, on the right. Ephraim, secondborn on the left. Jacob, as he's sitting up in his infirm condition, goes like this. Well, actually, I think it'd be more like this, because you know, firstborn is taller. So, okay, what is he doing? He's appropriated the transforming grace of God that promised him a blessing, and by divine revelation—that's the only way we could understand this—by the Holy Spirit's moving in his life, he realizes that Manasseh, though he indeed will become. A people, a great people. Ephraim is the preferred one, out of whom will become many nations, which will find the blessing that comes. So the second born gets blessed doubly above the first born. Unless we think that Jacob's just being ornery, this is obviously the Holy Spirit's leading. Now. Ephraim, in fact, at some point, this plays out to be very true in the life of Israel. Israel as a nation at some point in Israel's history becomes synonymous with Ephraim. In other words, people at some point in Israel's history would call Israel Ephraim. That was sort of the, the, the way to identify him. Oh, that's Ephraim. Now, we, we know the rest of the story. Manasseh and Ephraim became wicked in God's sight. And there was another tribe that took preference. It was the tribe of Judah that rose to the top. But God's transforming grace had so equipped and outfitted Jacob to understand in his sovereign providence that even evil can be worked for good. And Jacob knew by the Holy Spirit's leading that he was to prefer the second over the first. And in a counterintuitive response, To what God had commanded to him, he obeyed by faith. And so, because you see the rest of the story, you know, he gets kind of, Joseph gets pretty upset. Jacob says, no, this is the way it's happening. This is what is going to happen. Um, He says in verse 21, and then he finishes basically the chapter by saying, when Israel says to Joseph, behold, I'm dying, but God will be with you, bring you back to the land of your fathers, moreover, I've given you, to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of Amorite, of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, this Hebrew phrase at the end of this chapter, this is another um, interesting dynamic in the text in Hebrew. It's he's you know what he's actually talking about? He's talking about Shechem. Now, what happened at Shechem? the dastardly deed of Levi and Simeon. After their their sister was raped, they go in, connive, deceive, and slaughter an entire city. But there's a portion of Shechem that God is saying, I am going to give this to you and your inheritors. And Ephraim and Manasseh uh, split the inheritance among Israel, and they inherit that portion, which is just south of Bethlehem, the, the portion of Shechem near where their mother Rachel was laid to rest, near Ephraim or near Bethlehem. So we see here Jacob, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has blessed. He's done that which is counterintuitive. He's adopted the boys, replaced his own sons from their disobedience, and adopted his grandsons. Then he's appropriated the blessing that would have been to Reuben and Simeon to his grandsons, but not in the normal order where it would have been firstborn, but he does secondborn blessed with the firstborn, and firstborn blessed like the secondborn, and both of them blessed. And they get a land inheritance and a very special place in Jacob's life. Now, all of that historicity to say sometimes God expects us to obey his promises even when they seem counterintuitive. And as we we think about this, what does God call us in the New Testament? The weak things, right? What did Paul call himself? The weak. The least of all the apostles. The least of the saints. The chief of sinners. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And if you think he wrote Hebrews 14. (laughs) Pretty impressive resume. You know, a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin at the seat of Gamaliel, next in line to be at the chief of the Sanhedrin. But he says, I'm the worst sinner on planet Earth. You see, God uses the weak things, does he not? The crossed hands of blessing tell us that grace typically surprises us. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to th- nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians one 27-29. This is what makes the gospel so wild and wonderful. Because no one is beyond God's grace. The proudest, baddest, meanest man in town can and often does find grace. There is a wildness to God's mercy, one commentator said. You see, friends, just like you and I aren't beyond the grace of God, there is no one in your sphere, your circle, in the place that God has put you that is beyond his transforming grace. The question is, will you appropriate by grace through faith the promise of God, and will you pursue with all your heart the hope of your calling to be an ambassador for God through Jesus Christ to share the love of God and the hope of God and make your life about that text be a disciple who makes disciples? Or will you and I get so caught up in the horizontal, spinning our, our proverbial tires at making, retaining money, you know, keeping our houses, you know, kind of keeping up with the latest trends, you know, buying the, you know, the things that we need or feel like we need to make our lives comfortable and be content with coming and sitting and, and nursing at the, at the uh, Word of God every Sunday and becoming fat, bulbous, morbidly obese Christians who do nothing for God? You see, faith in God's word can produce actions that are counterintuitive. We're the weak things of this world. We're the nobodies. But praise God, we're somebody in Jesus. We're so somebody that God, who created everything out of nothing in six literal days, sent his one and only son out of love and mercy to die on a cruel cross for you. That makes you somebody in God's eyes. Somebody that God wants to use in a counterintuitive way to reach the lost in our community for Jesus. And you say, but pastor, you just don't understand how hard. You know what? We all bear our cross. My cross is different than your cross. And to be sure, I don't always understand the cross that you're having to bear. But I know somebody who does. Jesus, our great high priest. He is the sympathetic high priest, the sympathetic resonator. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You have anxiety and fear and worry and sorrow and hurt and pain and suffering. So is Jesus. You have uh, trials and tribulations. You've been falsely accused. Uh, You have been despised and rejected. So was Jesus. Jesus. You see, the counterintuitive nature of God's calling in our lives to appropriate by grace through faith, His precious promises means that when we trust God, we will live for God no matter how weird it seems to the rest of the world. So what we find in chapter 49 really is the longest poem in the book of Genesis. And I'm not going to walk through all of Chapter 49, our time is almost gone. I only have one more point. It's going to be a quick one. But what we're going to find is 10 out of the 25 verses or or lines in the poem of chapter 49 are dedicated to Judah, the Lion of Judah. By the way, that's on purpose. Judah was fourthborn of all things. Judah was the one who who was interested in money. And no money at that. 20 pieces of silver was nothing. It wasn't even a third of the going rate of an average slave in that day. He just took 20 pieces of silver for his brother because he despised him so much. He just wanted to get him out of his hair. And yet, God did such a transforming work of grace in Judah's life that at the end of the story, when he thought Benjamin would be gone, Simeon would be gone, and his father would go to his grave in sorrow and humility or in misery he said i will stand in for my brother you see god did a transforming work of grace even in the heart in the worm heart of judah yeah the guy who slept with tamar the who he thought was a prostitute yeah that guy god in his transforming grace so shapes the hearts of sinful men and women that he can transform any worm to a righteous saint of God. And friends, don't diminish or minimize what you can do for God and for His glory when you stop fixating on the problems of the past and you let the forgiveness of Christ and the atonement of Jesus cover those as a finished work on the cross and so that you can live in the present to the glory of God because He has secured your future. You see, God's transforming grace, God's transformative grace must be appropriated by faith in his promises lived out in our choices. What will you choose today? Will you choose to trust God, believe God, love God, obey God, live for God? That's what God expects of us. That's what the story of Genesis showcases. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think in a sin-cursed, awful, wicked, transcendent world of hostility, where we will be persecuted, where where absolute truth will be ridiculed, where people who stand up and say, hey, there's really just two genders, male and female, chromosomal science shows us that, we will be spit upon and ridiculed and laughed at, and even accused of hate speech, perhaps, maybe even imprisoned at some point. In a In a transcendent progressive postmodern society that says there is no absolute truth except for the absolute truth there's no absolute truth and uh, you can't tell me what I should do because my truth is truth for me and your truth is truth for you and what that's really saying is don't tread on my universe buddy I'm the god of my universe and you can't y- your universe clashes with my universe and my universe is bigger than yours a bunch of proud, arrogant people that Scripture says when they refuse to recognize the triunity of God in creation's creation and through conscience. Instead, they, rec- they worship the creature rather than the creator, and God gives them over to a reprobate mind, Romans chapter 1. That's the world we live in. And to them, what we're saying and doing and preaching, uh, Jesus' cross is foolishness. It's foolish to believe that God would take on flesh and become a part of his creation and live a sinless life and die as a substitute for all men who will come to him by faith. It's foolishness to the world. But to the rest of, God, to the rest of us who understand, it is the glory and wisdom of God. Because there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so, friends, when we confess Christ, we are counterintuitively appropriating by faith the transforming grace of God, and we are living lives that act upon that in obedience and love. The last point we see is this. Faith in God's Word will produce actions that highlight God's plan. That's really where the book ends. So I invite you. um, I said all I'm going to say about chapter 49, which is sad because there's so much there. Well, for sake of time, chapter 50. Chapter 50 really, um, probably no offense to whomever made the chapter divisions. Um, I think chapter 50 should start at verse 29 and chapter 49, personally. So I'm going to start there. Look where where verse 29 um, starts, as it were. Then he charged them, this is Jacob, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite, a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, there I buried Leah, by the way, prominent position for her. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That's a euphemism for he took his last breath and died. So what we find, though, is really different. I'm going I'm to jump now to verse 22 of chapter 50. So we have the death of Jacob. Now let's go to the death of Joseph. Look at verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. By the way, 93 of those years. We're in Egypt. Uh, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the, tenth, to the third generation. So Ephraim, his secondborn, who gets the firstborn blessing, he sees their great-grandchildren, all right? Third generation. Um, the children of uh, Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knee. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm dying but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I say, what, what's the point of this, Pastor? What did Jacob say? Bury me in Canaan. Immediately, right away, without delay. That's what Jacob wanted. What did Joseph say? Joseph was like, Guess what's going to happen? When God comes back and blesses you with deliverance, you're going to carry my bones back to the place of blessing because I'm going to be buried where God promised to give my people a home forever and ever. Now, I'm not diminishing Jacob's faith at all, okay? But how does the book end? Jacob says in chapter 49, at the end of chapter 49, I want you to give me a prominent place of burial because I need to be where God has blessed, and I want to be by my grandfather, my father and my grandfather, and with the wives. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what's that about? Me. I want to be where I want to be, right? What does Joseph say? God will surely visit you. The book ends with God. Joseph points people to God. Joseph says, God will visit you and deliver you, and when it happens, you will carry up my bones from here. It's a done deal. Can I I just say this? Faith in God's word will produce actions that highlight God's plan. Some of you have been through incredible trauma, and I don't presume to have walked in your shoes. I've been through some struggles myself. I've seen some difficulties endured in this life. But some of you had to bury a loved one, a spouse. Uh, Some of you have lost family members and friends tragically, instantly, perhaps. Perhaps some of you lost loved ones to the selfish decision of suicide. Friends, when we understand God's counterintuitive plan in our lives, we understand God's sovereign providence that works all things together for good, we will highlight God's plan with our decisions and our choices. How have you made it through those dark times? Because God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because you have clung to Jesus who is the King and Lord. Because you have recognized counterintuitively that the King of kings and Lord of lords took on flesh, became a human, suffered in your place the cruelty of his own arrogant people. Can you imagine being the dude that spit in the creator's face literally? But how many of us spit in his face proverbially when we choose to go our way and not his way? You see, faith in God's word will produce actions that highlight God's plan. And what gives us the transformative grace to pursue God's plan in our lives? That is the transformative reality that Jesus humbly obeyed God even unto death, the cruelty of the cross. So, friends, might we say like David, I will not fear, what can man do unto me? Might we say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Might we say like Daniel, I will not defile myself. I purposed in my heart to stand for my sovereign king. Might we say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be it known, O king, whether we live or die, we will not bow. Might we say with the men and women of old that have gone before us, even of our generation, our God is a good God, no matter how bad our circumstances are. And I am going to walk by faith and not by sight. I am going to trust God in the times of darkness because he's got a great hope, a great future, and a great light to come. And that person that seems unredeemable and unrepentant that God's placed in my life, I'm going to get on my knees until they turn into camel's calluses, and I'm going to pray that God will break their stubborn will and transform them from darkness to light like he did me. You see, faith in God's word will produce actions that highlight God's plan. What did John the Baptizer say? He must increase. I must decrease. How many of us as Christians live that live in this secular society that is all about you? It's all about hashtag your insta name, hashtag your YouTube channel. Right? It's all about connecting and networking me so I can become famous and rich and powerful, so I can be a social influencer. By the way, um, Taylor Swift, uh, last I checked was two weeks ago, uh, 94 million followers on X. President Trump, six million followers on X. So that'll just, of course, he was banned from X for a couple of years, but uh, that'll show you, right? Social influence. Now listen, counterintuitively, one life that's lived for God in Jesus' name can have more social influence than the most famous person of our generation. Amen. Because faith in God's word will produce actions that highlight God's plan. What is God's plan? Whosoever will may come. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Ho, pay attention. Behold, all of you who are thirsty and hungry, come to me. I will sell you. I will give you bread without price. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open unto me, I will come unto him, and I will dine with him he left the 99 in the wilderness and he went and pursued the one. Oh, may we have the attitude of God. As we think of God's transformative grace that is appropriated by faith in his promises, may we live that out in our daily lives. As we look to the future, as we start a series next month um, on essentially the passion of Christ, we'll be preaching on that in March. And then, in April, we're going to start a series on the church. One hope, one calling. I hope that our study in Genesis, highlighting the beginning of beginnings, sin destroys but God delivers, will not diminish in your thinking. Joseph, who God masterfully put through the mill in his providence, recognizes that his brothers meant it all for bad. He meant They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The counterintuitive nature of faith in God by His transformative grace appropriated by faith produces lived out actions in our lives. And faith in God's word highlights God and His plan, not me and my plan. Let's pray.